This first reading may surprise you. It may throw you into a bit of a time warp. If it's a jolt, may it be a reasonably gentle one. The Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence, he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. We'll unpack that a little more in the, in the sermon. <laughs> the second reading is actually an image. In your order of service, there's a page that says Sermon Reflection Questions, and there's two images. The one on the top is a circle with an off-center cross in it. So if you want to find that and take a look at it, I want to tell you about this image. About 65 years ago, a group of universalist ministers came together and had a discussion about what kind of symbol they could create that would represent their universalist faith. And this is what they created. And what they said about it was that the circle represents the universe. The empty space at the center of the circle represents that mystery that's at the heart of things. Some might call it God, some might call it the mystery, but that thing at the center of life that we are all moving toward or trying to be in relationship with. The cross represents Christianity, one of many paths to God or to that mystery in the center. And the cross also represents the path from which universalism and Unitarian universalism has grown. You'll notice the cross is off to one side, to leave room for other points of view and to acknowledge the validity of other paths toward that great mystery. Oh 
Thank you, Joe. How's everybody doing? We're, we're digging in today. Instead of pens and pencils and orders of service, maybe we should have given you crash helmets and knee pads and shovels and gloves when you came in because we're excavating. Let me give you some context for where we are. If you weren't here last week, you should know we're in the middle of a three-part sermon series on faith. Last week, part one, was inspired by Sharon Salzberg, her book, Faith. And in that sermon, I suggested that faith could be understood as a verb, a step we take, a leap we make, something we do again and again as we learn to trust our own deepest experiences, to say yes to the potential and possibility in life. I also suggested that faith could be understood as the practice of giving your heart to someone or something, not lending, but giving your heart, trusting, relying, confiding in someone, something. And I asked you last Sunday, who or what do you trust or rely on? Who or what do you give your heart to? If you missed it, it's online, it's a podcast, and I encourage you to go back and listen to it so next week you're all caught up in our sermon series with the dramatic and exciting part three conclusion. (laughs) But today is part two, excavating your faith. Next Sunday is integrating your faith as we will explore and examine what a strong, authentic faith can look like, a clearer faith, a more life-giving faith for each and every one of us. But before we dig in this morning, hard hats and shovels, let me name some of the assumptions I'm making, that I'm bringing to this sermon this morning. I assume that most of us here grew up in some Christian tradition. Not all of us, I know. Some of us grew up Unitarian, Universalist, some grew up Jewish, some grew up in other faith traditions or with no faith tradition. But most of us, as I've talked with many of you, grew up in a Christian tradition And if you didn't, you were surrounded by a Christian culture and nation, uh, so, so deeply influenced in that regard. And I assume, since we're naming assumptions, that many of you are here at this church because you had an uncomfortable, even painful relationship with Christianity. Things like the Apostles' Creed didn't work for you. 
at all. And first universalists felt like a breath of fresh air. Ah, no creed, no dogma, no nonsense, just a place to engage and reflect and grow your spirit. Believe me, I get it. I I was shaped by Christian uh, culture as a child, and I want to share this story with you. I grew up Unitarian Universalist, and when I was 12 years old, I had this conversation with my cousin, who was also 12, and she asked me what I thought about Jesus, and I didn't realize that this was a trick question, (laughs) right? She's like, what do you think about Jesus? I'm like, well, you know, I'm 12, and I've been talking about it in in Sunday school a little bit and thinking about it. I, I, I say I think he was an amazing teacher, a a spiritual guru, a spiritual genius, someone who had a lot of things to say and and a wise spiritual man, but I don't think he was the son of God, you know, God, and and I don't think he died for our sins on the cross. Wrong answer. (laughs) Wrong answer. And, And she started writing some things down on a piece of paper, kind of scribbling furiously, I'm like, what is going on? And then she turns to me and she says, you need to say this before you go to bed tonight to save your soul from hell. (laughs) I'm like, what in the world is going on? And you've probably had a similar encounter with a loved one, a family member, somebody in your workplace, some situation where you were in this exact same environment and you're like, what is going on? But here's what the note said, and you, you know the basic gist of this. The note said... Jesus Christ, I'm a sinner. This is what I'm supposed to say before I go to bed. Jesus Christ, I'm a sinner, and without you I am lost. I accept you into my heart as my Lord and Savior. Amen. I was like, what? I was angry. That was part of it. I was angry. It seems kind of presumptuous that someone could kind of speak on behalf of God like that. And frankly, I was a little bit scared as well. Because, holy cow, what if, the, what if my cousin was right? even just a little bit right about hell? And what if it was possible that I could, in fact, go there? In the years since, my cousin and I have patched up our relationship. We're actually um, close at this point in time, and we talk about our different faith traditions, and she's moved off of that fundamentalist perch that she uh, was on. But I share that story with you today to acknowledge the wounds and the hurt from Christianity that so many of us are still healing from today. And I share that story to acknowledge, to name in this room, in this sacred space, the anger and frustration that comes from those wounds and that hurt from Christianity that prevents us from healing. So I'm also assuming, perhaps wrongly, that many of us, rather than re-engaging our childhood faith, our Christian faith, or whatever it was, most of us a Christian faith, so that we might excavate it and dig it up and lay it out in front of us and say, this was hurtful, this was poisonous, this was toxic, but, oh wow, here's a treasure. Here's something I want to keep. Here's something worth holding on to. Rather than doing that and seeing what is junk and what might nourish us, we dismiss We turn away from, we make fun of Christianity out of our own hurt and anger. It's true, isn't it, that mainstream Christianity has been corrupted by theological nonsense, by a refusal to accept modern science, by sexism and anti-Semitism and homophobia and so much more. The list goes on. It's not unique to Christianity. 
And the thing that we forget is that there are hundreds of ways to understand the gospel. There are hundreds of different kinds of, Christian, of Christians. And more importantly, Christianity is our taproot. It's what we come out of. It is our heritage, the story that this faith is birthed out of. And there are elements of the Christian story that can nourish us today. So when we ignore and belittle Christianity, it becomes the big elephant in the room. (laughs) You're wondering about the elephant, right? You've been, from the moment you came in, you're like, what is this elephant up here? What is going on with the elephant? What, what is that? And there's a top hat on that elephant. That is bizarre. What is that about? I was hoping to get a huge one and put it out there so you'd actually have to walk by it. But this, is, this was really good on, on, on short notice. But there it is. It's taken up a big chunk of space. It's right there. It's kind of the center of, of the room. And we're constantly kind of thinking about it. What's the elephant? What's, what's going on? But we don't want to talk very much about the elephant. And so when we ignore the Christian story, this elephant, it's like having a big family reunion. This is how I think of it. It's like having a huge family reunion, except you don't invite any of the grandparents or great-grandparents. You just call everybody together, but yeah, grandparents, great-grandparents, we're just kind of, I don't know, uncomfortable with you? We'll just have a little kind of weird family reunion. <laughs> and you're giggling, and I'm giggling when I tell that story, and it's because it makes us look silly. We look silly as people of faith, as Unitarian Universalists, when we say to ourselves and to the world, we are so open-minded, we are tolerant, we believe in all paths to the truth and studying world religions and just think there's a lot of good things to learn from many faith traditions. But we're pretty open and tolerant. I'm not saying this is true 100% of the time. Of course it's not. But it is the elephant in the room. There are others, I'm certain. And part of our job as we dig around this morning, as we excavate our faith this morning, is to engage the elephant. To remember that Christianity can be authentically interpreted in many ways. And we have to think outside the box. It's kind of like... It's kind of like those nine dots in your order of service, right? So in the sermon-based reflection, there's the circle with the off-center cross, and there's nine dots in there. And some of you know this, so if you do, just keep it quiet. But a lot of you have probably been looking at those nine dots wondering, what is this about? What's going on? Uh, Just take a look at those nine dots. You know, you have a pen or a pencil, so take a look at those nine dots. Now, without lifting your pen or pencil... From the page, the paper, using four lines, connect all those dots. Keep your pen or pencil on the page, four lines, connect all the dots. You can't, your pen or pencil can't leave the page, four lines, connect all the dots. You, and don't try to get all fancy with some squiggly thing and say that's, that counts. Four straight lines, pen can't leave the page. Some of you know this. That's great. Are the rest of you kind of like, hey, this is, what the, what the heck's going on here? What? So here's the analogy. For many of us, this is how Christianity feels, right? It's presented as nine dots, and there's a set of rules, and no matter how we work it and how we look at it and how we think about it and how we come at it, it just doesn't work for us. So out-of-the-box thinking, here we go. 
I love visual aids. All right, so take a look at this. These are the nine dots, just in a bigger format, up here. Can everybody see this, nine dots? And the, you, can, you can start anywhere to make, make it all connect. There's four lines, the big red lines. But the key to this, as, as you will observe as you look at it, is you have to think, we hear this all the time, we say it all the time, you have to think outside the box. You have to leave your assumptions and, and you know, pre-thinking, put that to the side in order to engage the nine dots. This will probably be a distraction for me, won't it? You guys are all like busy working on your dots and things right now. <laughs> but we move beyond our boundaries to see things in a different way. So keep, keep that in mind, the nine dots in this little exercise. Move beyond boundaries to see things in a new way, especially right now as we dig into our childhood faith, which for many of us, like I said, was Christianity, and we see and understand a couple of things maybe in some new ways. So the the little things I want to look at this morning are Jesus, the cross, and the Bible. Small things, right? There's a lot, but those, those three. First, Jesus. And here's where the Apostles' Creed comes in. Thank you for sitting through that. In, in the, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm I'm laughing because, uh, we're we're laughing, I think, because it is hard in this day and age to actually take that as literal truth. And I can promise you a number of deeply authentic Christians do not necessarily hear that as literal truth. But in the creed, Jesus is is presented as the son of God who dies for our sins and will judge us all. I, like many of you and many Christians, reject that as literal. And I think many of us reject it for another more important reason. It misses the whole point of Jesus' ministry. It reduces Jesus' life to a comma. Born of the Virgin Mary, comma, suffered under Pontius Pilate. That's his life. It says nothing about his desire to build a kingdom of equals, to make the reign of God, that loving spirit, here on earth. A reality. It says nothing about how he came to preach good news to the poor, that he was inspired by God to bind up the brokenhearted, to free the captives, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked. It says nothing about Jesus being a religiously motivated reformer, a threat to the Roman Empire because his message of radical egalitarianism was subversive and threatening. And I am sorry, Glenn Beck. I am sorry, Glenn Beck, but Jesus, Christianity in fact, does call us to side with the poor and the oppressed. And social justice is in fact at the heart, I would argue, of Jesus' message. If you read anything in the Gospels, you'll see immediately that Jesus doesn't go around spouting creeds about what you should believe and what you should think about him, but he does have an awful lot to say about how we treat others, how we treat immigrants and outcasts and those at the margins, those in the shadows of society. And when asked, what are the rules we should follow of all these old rules in the Hebrew scriptures, everything in Deuteronomy, he says, just cut all that stuff out. There's two things. Two things you have to do. One is to love God, that mystery at the center of things, with all your heart. And the other is to love your neighbor equally. It is that Jesus that inspired 
Mahatma Gandhi, that inspired Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Dorothy Day and countless others. And it is this Jesus that calls many forward in faith to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with that spirit of life. I'm curious, what was the Jesus of your childhood like? A sacrificial lamb? A religious reformer? A radical Jew? A blonde-haired, blue-eyed, kind of effeminate-looking guy? (laughs) Jesus was probably Middle Eastern, guys. I mean, the blue eyes, blonde hair is... But what was that childhood Jesus, what was that Jesus of 10 years ago, 20 years ago, like for you? And if we're talking about Jesus, we can't help but talk about the cross. We're digging around in our childhood faith, and we are bound to run into the cross. And I want to bring you back to that image in your order of service, the circle with the off-centered cross. And as you heard, this was a symbol that a group of universalist ministers came up with to represent universalism. The circle is the universe. The open space is the mystery at the center of things. And Christianity was one path, not the only path, not not the only valid path, but one way to reach that mystery. It's also that cross represents Unitarian Universalism, the path we come out of as we have grown into our own faith tradition. And it's off to the side to acknowledge all the other ways people engage the mystery. And in that symbol, the cross is not about Jesus Christ dying on the sin, dying on, dying on the cross to redeem us from our sins because God required it and the blood atonement was needed so that we could all be personally saved and then nothing more was required of us. That always struck me as a little troubling that we had to believe in that, but then not much more. And some versions of Christianity was required of us. So in this symbol, the cross has a much, much, much different understanding, much different meaning. As universalist author Richard Trudeau says, the cross can be a warning and a call. It is a warning that it is dangerous to defend oppressed people that our lives might be put at risk if we really do this. And the call is that we're supposed to do it anyway. In this understanding, the cross has nothing to do with a blood atonement or Jesus redeeming us from sin. Instead, as many universalists have pointed out, Jesus came to remind us of the power of love, of God's love, of that love at the heart of things, and to remind us that all human beings have value and worth and dignity. And if we're faithful to that love, speaking and acting on behalf of those who are oppressed and voiceless, there is often a cost to pay, possibly including death, but we are called to act nonetheless. The focus in this symbol with that understanding of the cross is not on some other world where you believe Jesus died for your sins and get to heaven. The focus is on this world, standing and acting on behalf of the oppressed and poor so that all might thrive, so that a living paradise might emerge in this world. 
And it's not hard to think of people who have followed this call. What was the cross of your childhood like? What might it mean to you today? Finally, the Bible. Perhaps you grew up in a faith tradition where the Bible was presented as a single book with a single author expressing one point of view that was most likely interpreted by someone else for you. I have a a colleague, a beloved colleague, who passed away a couple of years ago, a minister colleague, who, um, when she talks about this, she gets fired up and she would say, you know, it's really not like God had a big, big pen and just kind of reached down and sort of penned out the whole Bible. Because today, with modern scholarship, we know the Bible is more like a library. It's like a big Wikipedia. And there are multiple authors. And the books are in conversation and arguing with one another. And it is a conversation about the holy, about the mystery, that points to that mystery. But it's not the literal word of God. And I invite you, if you haven't lately, to sit with the Psalms. Sit in green fields by quiet water. Be restored. Or pick up the book of Job and sit with evil and suffering in those questions that are oh so human about why do bad things happen to each of us. Turn to the songs of Solomon and find a sort of biblical harlequin romance. Those of you who know the songs of Solomon will maybe agree, but I think it's way better than a harlequin romance. The Bible is our Story. It's our anchor point. It's a grand story that we and our faith come out of. So Jesus, the cross, the Bible. Are you feeling kind of stirred up? You're all very subdued. I can't tell if I've just knocked you on the head or if you're contemplating. <laughs> if you are feeling stirred up, which I wouldn't be surprised... It's what happens when you go excavating, when you engage the elephant. Yes, there is some toxic stuff in our religious past, but there are also great treasures, things that can nourish us. And this is a treasure chest. These symbols, this, this rock, this shell, these are symbols for the treasures you might find when you excavate your religious past, naming what is hurtful and toxic, but also what might still nourish you today. Speaking of those treasures and trinkets, uh, this sermon really came together in large part because of conversations I had with Jill, who has been sharing some of her music with us this morning. And I don't know how it is for you, but I know, even though I grew up Unitarian Universalist, I know some of those Christian hymns. And there's a power when you hear some of those old hymns. They connect you to memories and experiences and communities kind of across time and space and, and still have, uh, still speak in, in the way that music can. As Jill and I uh, talked about this service, kind of talked back and forth, and she shared some memories with me, um, she gave me permission to share a particular story that I found really moving. And the story was that um, just in the last couple of months, as her mother was dying, she and the family gathered around and they sang some of these Christian hymns. Um, The family gathered around and they sang these hymns. And in Jill's words, 
there were so many transcendent moments the music enabled us to bridge. Ushering in forgiveness and acceptance, grief and a strong awareness of the sacredness of death. Through it all, she says, I found myself returning to the language of those old hymns which for so long I rejected. And now we're bringing comfort to me and most importantly to my mother and father. It was powerful to sing Kumbaya at my mother's bedside with the whole family singing in harmony and touching, touching my mother as we sang. As I sang amidst a family which had been very challenging for me, I found myself praying, Lord, please take my mother. And I sang my Unitarian Universalist heart out. It was profound and something I will never forget. In that moment, Jill, in that moment, there was a deep, deep trust. Trust in that space as you gave your heart to your mother, to those songs, to that moment. And there was no fear of betraying the intellect or the Unitarian Universalist identity. No creed that got in the way. There was just a sense of deep trust. Lord, please take my mother. Lord, please be with us. Precious Lord, please take my mother. So this is the bottom line I want you to hold on to as you re-envision, as you reimagine, as you reconsider your relationship with Christianity or whatever faith tradition you grew up in. Excavate with an open heart and mind and trust your own deepest experiences as you engage song and symbol, tradition and ritual. Some of what you find, yes, it will be painful. It will be toxic. You can set those pieces aside. But some of what you find will nourish you. It will nourish and feed your soul and feed the deepest parts of who you are. This is my hope and my prayer. May it be so. And amen. Valleys of sleep and over the 